Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, a computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And I'm now building Sky Therapeutics, a digital therapeutic startup developing therapeutic video games. My name is Shad. I'm a physician and Harvard MBA and co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky. Our guest today is Dr. Shehnaz Suleiman. Shehnaz is a physician, drug developer, and deal maker with over 25 years of experience building and transforming small and large biotech companies. She is CEO and board member at Recode Therapeutics, an integrated genetic medicines company located in California that works on developing disease-modifying therapeutics using its powerful LNP delivery technology to target organs and tissues beyond the liver. She was formerly president and COO at Elector, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company, and her professional experience began in 2001. And since then, Shahnaz has changed six roles in seven companies, such as Theravance Biopharma, Genentech, Roche, Gilead, Lehman Brothers, and Petkovich and & Partners, and Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Suleiman received her MD from the University of Cape Town Medical School in South Africa. She also holds an MBA with distinction and an MPhil in Development Studies from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. She was named as one of the 2017 Fiercest Women in Life Sciences and as one of the National Diversity Council's Power 50 in 2001. And recently, she was also featured on Forbes's 50 over 50 list in 2023. Shehnaz, thank you for joining us and welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. Thank you. First of all, congratulations on being recently selected on the 2023 the Over 50 list and the 2023 Top 100 Women of Influence by the Silicon Valley Business Journal. That's amazing. You know, you've said in an interview once that your interest in clinical medicine was born out of the lived experience. So Shehnaz, could you elaborate a little bit more about that and, you know, what eventually led you to build a career on the intersection of medicine, life sciences and business? Of course. Um, so thank you very much for that. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I, As I may have told you in prior conversations, uh, I grew up in South Africa under apartheid, and that was uh, an instrumental period of um, experience and learning for me because it brought to the forefront the importance of access to medicine and the big differences that um, particularly public health medicine can make in countries in which there are vast disparities um, in health equity. And uh, so I always knew I was going to be a physician based on that experience and um, that I wanted to have an impact at a macro level because it was really about population health and, you know, access to health care generally where I felt I could have the most impact. Um, so I did attend medical school in, at the University of Cape Town and then did my residency in the mining hospital. And that was another place in which I, again, saw firsthand the gross disparities in healthcare access. Again, it was under the construct of apartheid and so racially motivated inequities. But the reality was it was just, um, you know, grossly disparate. And so 
uh, again, that informed the importance of trying to address unmet needs um, in populations that don't have access to care and don't have a voice. And so uh, part of what I did when I came to Oxford was um, to do development economics, actually, which was my attempt at looking at public health through the lens of, you know, economic policies that either tend to amplify or uh, to diminish the inequities that exist. Um, and then I went to business school. <laughs> it was a pragmatic choice um, to look at how I could, you know, um, again, influence through creative business models that um, the way that access to medication in particular uh, was um, orchestrated. And so really it was those experiences which ultimately took me through a pass through in investment banking um, just to learn skills, but to biotech. And that's where I've been for the past 25 years is uh, in small companies and large companies working really hard um, as a drug developer, as a business development professional, you know, to do transactions that focus on the intersection of business and innovative science and that are important to getting um, new treatments to patients that are underserved and also uh, to patients across the world so that some of the, the patient, some of the patients in the developing world can also uh, benefit from uh, innovative treatments that are made available in commercial markets uh, through creative mechanisms uh, in business. Thank you, Shahnaz. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing kind of your trajectory and thinking process. And I mean, when I was doing the research on this episode and kind of preparing the questions and reading through all of your, you know, accomplishments back in pharma space and kind of the deal making in the life sciences space, you've already made that impact on a global level. So that's really incredible. And I think the experience that you've talked about, you know, studying medicine and working and serving as medical doctor back in South Africa reminded me of my own experience studying medicine and serving as medical doctor back in Syria. And I think during that time, you know, I saw how much you can do on the front lines as an individual medical doctor, but I also saw how much decisions that are made beyond kind of that frontline patient contact how much those decisions influence the quality of care that we deliver, influence access to care. And I think, you know, in, in a very similar motivation to what you had, I think that that's what pushed me to go into the business space. So I really appreciate you sharing that and I associated with it. And so, Shehnaz, specifically in the business world, you know, careers are not linear. And your trajectory is, is a prime example, moving from clinical medicine to finance to pharma. And now you're leading a biotech company that has raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, you know, many of my mentors told me that I should optimize for learning because engineering a linear career trajectory is very hard in business. There is so much unpredictable. And so when you were just going off the beaten path and finishing your studies at Oxford and kind of making the jump to finance, what did you optimize for back then? And could you share with us your mental model on decision-making uh, that, that you've utilized to, to kind of make that pragmatic career choice that you've made? Certainly. Well, I had discovered biotech and I had real and realized the, you know, the many ways in which you could make a contribution through different functional roles within biotech that could be quite meaningful. The question was how to get there. And um, I mentioned banking as a pass through to biotech because 
uh, first and foremost, a lot of the work you do is strategic advisory work to healthcare companies. Secondly, you're interacting with boards, so at a very high level of decision-making, which um, is always the most, not always, but is, is a great way to have significant impact. Um, and thirdly, it allows you to have a vantage point around, um, you know, how to finance these companies in great markets and in difficult markets, like the one we're going through right now. And so um, my thinking at the time was, this is a great way to experience vast um, sections of the industry in an advisory capacity to learn about companies that were doing good work and that were more aligned with my overall mission, and also to learn some important skills that no matter what I did afterwards would be invaluable. And that is, in fact, the way it panned out. Now, did I expect Lehman to, you know, not make it? No. <laughs> um, you know, I quickly had to pivot from a large bank to a smaller boutique bank on the West Coast. Um, you know, it was totally non-linear in that respect, but at least um, the core concept was uh, this is a great opportunity to learn some great skills, but also start to move closer toward the North Star of finding a great biotech company that married both my professional uh, aspirations, you know, uh, as a business development professional, but also my aspirations around um you know, access to treatments in the developing world, which is how it ultimately end up, ended up at Gilead. Thank you, Shahnaz. I think I had a very similar thinking process, actually, when I was thinking about the first career step that I make. And I ended up actually doing a banking internship because my thinking process was the same. There is, as a medical doctor, there is a lot of hard technical skills in business that we don't necessarily have. And so, Banking sounded to me as a great opportunity to gain those skills, pretty much similar to a residency in business. I don't know if that's a right kind of uh, description to make or not, but I appreciate that you kind of shared your thinking process there. And I remember when I was doing that internship with Lazard, one of the healthcare managing directors, who's also a medical doctor, told me that the most difficult professional conversation that he had was with one of his clinical mentors when he told him that he's leaving medicine and going into finance. I'm very curious to know how was your experience when you've made that decision to go off the beaten path a decade and a half ago. And so now it seems like a very easy decision because you've achieved a lot of success in your career. But I'm sure that back then, there may have been challenges that faced you when you were making that decision and that jump. So could you take us back to that moment of time? What were the challenges? Has there been any difficult conversations that you had with your clinical mentors or people close to you? And how did you navigate those challenges? Yeah, it, it, it wasn't um, a clean break, so to speak, because even when I was at Oxford, I was practicing in the local hospitals at the John Radcliffe and Churchill and continued to, um, you know, hone my clinical skills and be an individual contributor while studying for the MBA and, you know, the MPhil. So it, it wasn't a clean break in that sense. I was just more or less starting to move toward adjacencies um, academically, which then led to adjacencies professionally. And I think what was important about it was, you know, I joined the healthcare investment banking group um, at Lehman, and um, they were trying to diversify the group by adding clinical 
you know, physician scientists and scientists into the team to have better depth and insight. I mean, the, the industry we are in is fundamentally driven by data and science and impact to patients. So, you know, I think those are the first principles around any business decision. You know, is it going to have the impact desired? The way to get there is through financing and, you know, creative um, deal making and and other mechanisms. So I think it's I think it's less about um, making clean breaks from one thing to another than it is about understanding what the synergies are that enable you to use skills from each experience and to ultimately leverage those to have incrementally greater impact. And so I did not have conversations about giving up clinical medicine, so to speak. I just had conversations about, you know, my interests and um, and how to maximize uh, the skills I was learning in a way to get me closer to the kind of impact I was trying to drive. So it's a little different. I think the way you frame the conversation is important. It's not about leaving something to go to something else. It's not like you're running away. Um, you know, I, I always consider myself a physician first, even in business. And so um, I just think it's aiming for the beautiful union of the things that uh, you learn, the skills that you have, and the impact that you're trying to drive. I love that. I think that's a beautiful framing. And I completely agree. And I think, Shehnaz, a lot of innovation comes from the intersection of different disciplines together. So I love the way that you framed this. And I'm going to hand it over now to Shad for a few questions from his side. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Shanaz. Just an amazing, very robust conversation so far. And, and I took a lot of notes just uh, for my own personal edification here, because th there's just so much high yield stuff here. I think, you know, when you decided to venture off the clinical path, you know, you mentioned this notion that it wasn't a clean break, but rather you started to move towards adjacencies. I think this is... Uh, an important point and worth sort of doubling down on, you know, sometimes it may have to be a clean break, like if you're starting a venture backable company, but that's really the minority of cases. I think most times, and, and from what I've seen from our guests that we've had the privilege to interview over the last couple of years, we've done this podcast, you can increasingly dabble in, in what you call adjacencies so that you can start to generate the skills needed to have you know, immense impact. We were talking to Michael Sherman, who was the CMO of Point32, and now he's working at a private equity fund. And he said that you know, at different points in his life, he just did what he found was you know, intellectually stimulating and interesting. And before he knew it, he was in a smaller and smaller and smaller group of circles. And so jobs started to find him. It was just very interesting because he said that he went from like always applying to jobs to never having to apply to jobs ever again, because people start to find you as you develop those adjacent, you know, expertise. And so I think that's a notion that uh, shouldn't be lost on our audience. And so I really appreciate you mentioning that. I think w another thing that's really inspiring and is clear from your answers, it sort of oozes from your answers is, is, is how much you've cared about, you know, social, cultural, and, and racial inequalities. I think, you know, for a lot of people growing up in the West, it, it can be sort of theoretical and academic, but you mentioned that, 
you saw it firsthand in apartheid South Africa. You know, I grew up for the first 13 years of my life in Bangladesh, and you would see a massive house where four people lived, neighboring a downtrodden slum where, you know, hundreds of people lived. And it was awful, like genuinely awful to witness, but, you know, can also prompt you and inspire you to try to make some change to reduce some of those structural inequalities. And so I wanted to stay on that thread of advocacy and talk about some of the recent advocacy work that you've done. As our audience probably knows, Roe versus Wade was overturned relatively recently, getting rid of federal protections to abortion access, leading to many states, especially in the South, to pass restrictions on abortion. And there's also been a fight with regards to access to mifepristone, the so-called you know abortion pill. And as I understand, you know, you and, and reading into some of the work that you've done, you really helped galvanize other female and, and male executives to, you know, sign petitions, prompted them to use their influence to defend abortion access rights for American women. And I'd just love to know why and how you decided to get so publicly involved in this particular issue. And then secondly, for our audience who may be po- passionate about certain social and political topics, but may not be sure if and when they should voice their opinion or if it's quote unquote appropriate to do so in the workplace or whether or not they'll face repercussions. I'm wondering if you have any advice for them. So first, I'd I'd love for you to speak up about, you know, this particular issue that's important to you and then more generally advice you would have for others about voicing their opinions on certain sociopolitical and cultural topics. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the general point is that, um, you know, if you're operating out of a place where, you know, the change you're trying to drive comes from within and something that you care about deeply, um, then, you know, you are likely to have much more authenticity and drive even harder. I mean, I think that's just the first principle that, um, and I think there are daily reminders, whether you grew up in the West or not, of the kinds of inequities that exist with around us. And, if, and frankly, some of the institutions that, um, you know, perhaps are um, under assault, if I can call it that. And so, um, you know, the decision, the Dobbs decision was really, as we saw it, ultimately um, an assault on FDA's scientific authority, first and foremost. And, you know, if you look at polling data in the U.S., it shows that people do believe that a single district court should not be able to indicate uh, which drugs are safe and effective for patients. That is the mandate of the FDA. And we cannot have a single court based on, you know, undermine that ideology and put patients' lives at risk. It's that simple. And so, um, you know, our main purpose of, you know, for coming out was really around protecting the authority of the FDA to set national standards around what we believe to be safe and effective for patients. And also, also it, it is a core underpinning for what enables us to generate innovative medicines for the American public. And so I think this issue was particularly important, not just because of the reproductive health care angle, which is really around Um, you know, not safeguarding women's freedom and choices around reproductive health. But it was far more fundamental than that. It was about undermining the authority of an agency, a bipartisan agency that is best placed and to which other countries in the world look 
to as a benchmark for how to opine around this. And that's really absolutely core to um, enabling our industry to be effective. Um, so really, it was more about that. And I think the second part of your question was just around um, how do you go about doing that and how do you know when, you know, you can maybe not cross any lines or, you know, offend people or do it appropriately. I mean, I think that really is up to you at the end of the day. I think there is a way to do these things properly. Um, I think one always has to be a bit strategic in the way you think about how you drive impact for, for me and for us, the, the sisterhood that was behind this. It was really about, you know, writing letters that and then ultimately filing briefs um, you know, amicus briefs that we thought could be effective in um, in having the Supreme Court review. So there are constructive ways to engage with issues. And I think it's just a matter of figuring out what that looks like. And and also, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have um, the support of a large number of people within the industry that see the issue in the same way. For example, Albert Bula from Pfizer signed the letter and came out strongly in support of it. And um, and many others like him and um, and many other biotech leaders, you know, saw this as a pretty fundamental issue. So it was really about how to harness um, a groundswell of opinion and the momentum around it so that we felt like we could do something constructive, generate a media response that was important, um, and then file the Amici briefs to the Supreme Court and make sure that our voices were heard, and that our opinions were represented. Fantastic and very, very enlightening response. Thank you, Shanaz. I think the first thing you mentioned was, you know, if you care about something deeply, you're, you're much more likely to be authentic about it, and you're much more likely to care about what you're doing and probably much more likely to be successful at it. I think that's incredibly generalizable to every aspect of our lives, whether it's sort of our professional lives or any particular issue but also our personal lives. And, and so that's something that I think should stick with our, our audience members. I also love, and I don't know if this was like particularly strategic or not, but I also just love how you, how a lot of executives didn't just focus exclusively on reproductive rights, like you said, but talked about the authority of the FDA. Uh, so it's not just about abortion access, which obviously is incredibly important, but it can sometimes be divisive and, and very polarizing but hopefully more people can get behind how important the FDA is and, and how they've protected Americans in the past, whether it's, you know, with thalidomide and a variety of different, you know, decision-making points in the past. Now, I say that the cynic in me would say that there's been recent public attacks against the FDA and to reduce FDA's authority in a variety of different domains. But I think it's certainly something that can have more groundswell of support and more bipartisan support than any one particular issue, especially something as divisive as abortion rights, even though a lot of us think it shouldn't be as divisive as it is. So I really, really appreciate uh, how you couched that discussion. Sticking with advocacy work, because you've done so much of it, there's really a groundswell of momentum in the US, if I can say, both through a cultural change, but also, as I understand, through regulatory changes about diversifying boards, which have traditionally been dominated by traditional networks that have excluded women and people of color. And you've done very important work in this area. And I'd love for you to share some of the work that you've done and what advice would you have for you know younger women and people of color, so many of whom are incredibly talented and hardworking, 
but may have to deal with you know additional hurdles along the way, much more so than you know their counterparts. Yeah. Um, so um, yes, I, I am involved in some board diversity work through uh, the Boardroom Ready program, which is run by the Executive Woman in Bio arm um, of Women in Bio, and the goal there is to really um, create. It's it's really an enhancement program for um, you know female executives and particularly minority groups that have traditionally not ever had access to uh, board opportunities. And we have been um, fairly successful. We've had over 200 graduates over the past six years, and we've had about 250 board placements happening happen as a result. And uh, part of the rationale for that was really to, um, you know, level up a little bit in the C-suite and enable people to, uh, folks to learn some skills, like what do you actually do when you land on an audit committee, uh, for example, and be ready now versus ready later. And the other part of it was um, dispelling this idea that you know these candidates don't exist because that's often the that's often the mantra, which is oh we'd love to have people that look and feel a particular way or have a certain skill set or background, but we don't know where to find these people. So we created a directory, which um, now is easily uh, searchable and accessible to to you know important stakeholders like board chairs and venture groups, et cetera, to enable easy access. I think the second part of your question was around, um, well, how do you plan for this? I mean, there there is a there is a time for board work. And I, I would say, you know, you can't go there too prematurely because the first real, you know, objective in in a professional trajectory is to really achieve mastery of what it is that you are doing, whether that's, you know, mastery over a functional area like business development or clinical development, or whether that's mastery of a therapeutic area or genre or mastery as an entrepreneur, you know, someone that builds and founds companies and or whatever it is. But I think you to have the credibility and respectability that you need to be able to contribute on the other side of the table you really need to achieve mastery of uh, a particular domain. And once you have done that and built the requisite leadership experience that um, that often accompanies, you know, being around for a little bit of time, then you might be in a position to be able to contribute effectively. So, you know, it's not just a numbers game. It's, it's really about depth and breadth of experience that allows you to then parlay that into a board context and to be able to provide insights. It's really because, you know, the, the most important thing you can do as an effective board member is ask the right questions. And your ability to do that is um, comes from nonlinear experiences. It's breadth and depth. And, and also it's, you know, it's about um, seeing the lows and developing some scar tissue about how to generate, you know, how to manage through really tough environments and business uh, sort of decisions. And things don't always go, in fact, they rarely go according to plan. So I would just say you've got to build up a repository of um, skills and experience that make you valuable as an operator. And then you're in a position to access opportunities um, that allow you to then give that back, so to speak, by serving on a board. And the best way to get there is really to build your network and to build a network with decision makers. So things like the Boardroom Ready Program and other board programs are useful because once you graduate from those, you then get put into the queue and have more line of sight. 
but also building relationships with a network of board chairs, CEOs and operators, chairs of NAM and Gov, people who are serving on boards is really the way to kind of broaden that, you know, experience to enable you to be um, accessible and available for when these opportunities become uh, come around. Thank you, Shanaz. Really appreciate that answer. I think you mentioned a few points here. The, the first one is this notion that you, in order to give advice, at least advice that's worth giving and worth taking, you probably need to achieve some level of you know mastery and have the right experience to get that credibility from people you're giving advice to. You know, VCs, uh, and we've talked to obviously you know hundreds of VCs. VCs always sort of talk about you know their own entrepreneurial chops and and how they have built companies themselves. Because if you're getting advice from someone who's just studied entrepreneurship or has funded entrepreneurship without actually doing it themselves, it's a little bit of a disconnect that you can't quite fill, especially when you know, you really, really need help and really want to trust someone's opinion. Uh, Same thing with education. I actually had a friend, I won't name the business school, at a different top business school. And he told me that his entrepreneurship professor was a purely an academic for the last 40 years of his life and had never once started a company. And and he told me that it was a complete waste of his time. Again, not my words, but, but his words. Whereas, you know, our entrepreneurship professor had started multiple and exited multiple companies, which I really, really appreciated. The other point about some of the board diversification work that you've done, obviously it helps groups that have historically been left behind, but I imagine it, it's good for business as well and, and good for these companies to get a diverse set of opinions, just purely financially and in making better decisions. Everyone has blind spots, and and you sort of mentioned this, some of which people are aware of. These are sort of our known unknowns, but some others that we're not aware of at all, which are unknown unknowns. And one of the ways you are protect against that is to be, you know, very self-reflective and self-aware and open to other people's perspectives, but also to sort of pack the boardroom with different types of opinions or people with different experiences or who see the world fundamentally different from you. So I think that's at least from my, you know, limited experience, very, very important. Um, So I really, really appreciate your point there. Finishing up here with a question about risk-taking, you know, in a conversation we had with uh, Dr. Bobby Azamian, he's the CEO of Tarsus Pharmaceuticals, who you I'm sure know, we talked about the role of immigrant mentality in, in building what we called risk tolerance in the face of unique challenges that immigrants and people of color face. You know, I always say that people upending their lives and leaving to go to another country for a better life is, in some sense, the personification of of calculated risk-taking. And in 2017, you were included in Fierce Pharma's Fiercest Women in in Life Sciences. So you certainly know a thing or two about risk-taking. You know, how should physicians looking to jump into business think about this notion of risk-taking? Because in clinical medicine, at least in clinical surgery, when I was a surgery resident... You know, often because lives are at stake, safety and certainty are sort of indexed on a little bit more than, or a lot more rather than risk taking. And the calculus often changes in the business world where some level of risk is not only needed, but is actually openly sought after. Otherwise, you can't generate those sort of alpha returns, so to speak. Uh, so would love to hear your perspective here on, on how physicians should think about risk taking as they jump into the business world. Yeah, you know, the advice I would have given my younger self is to take more risks early on, especially um, because I think that's the time when you can personally afford to take more risks. And if you fail, it's not uh, 
existential. It's just uh, another node in the decision tree and you learn from failures. And in order to push the, the envelope on innovation and other things, by definition, you have to fail and you have to pivot from perceived failure into, um, you know, into different things and, and learn and build. You know, Mandela always used to say, I never, I never lose. I either win or learn. And I think that's the mentality you have to have. Um, it ultimately is a very personal calculation around what level of risk tolerance um, makes sense at different stages of your professional life and personal life. And, you know, for me, when I had my kids early on, it was better for me to be in larger environments in which, you know, cash runway and all this kind of thing wasn't really um, an issue. And, um, you know, um, maybe in some ways quality of life was a little better. But and then later on, it you know, having built up again and diversity of experiences was was important. And then later on, I could take afford to take more and more risks, and it didn't quite matter if things didn't work out. And the definition of what working things out changes as as you go through your life, you know. And maybe maybe you care more about the financial aspects at certain times in your life, and maybe you care more about impact at other times in your life. And so it's all really a balance and a spectrum. And so I would say don't be afraid. Um, you know, because the failures are really just opportunities to learn and and not make the same mistakes again and continue to push the envelope, right? And um, so um, take risks, but also take calculated risks, to your point, and make sure that they are impedance matched with what is best for you. Like, where do you operate most successfully some people are better as entrepreneurs. Other people are better as functional heads in large pharma companies. So I think you do have to do a little bit of shopping around to figure out where your superpower is aligned with the right environment within which to thrive. And once you figure that out, oh, I love being in a smaller company better, and then go for it, you know, then just go for it based on, you know, people that you like and want to work with based on projects, based on science, um, but go for it. And that would be my advice. So a little bit of, you know, socializing in the beginning, a few jobs, you know, two-year gigs at a minimum, I would say, to figure out where your superpower is and then aligning that with the operating environment that makes sense. And, um, and having a risk-on mentality will really be helpful. Thank you, Shanaz. Incredibly insightful and, and absolutely something that we've talked about previously. You know, not everyone has the ability to take risks at all moments. You know, if you're 40 and married, I'm just picking sort of random ages. 40 is not, you know, old by any stretch, obviously. But, you know, if you're 40 and married and have 200K in debt from school and, and three kids, then you can't make the same decisions as someone who's 25, who's not married, who no debt, comes from a wealthy family. Those are very, very different. And ultimately, it's very, very personal. And there's personal factors at play, macroeconomic factors, and, and many more. Our entrepreneurship professor, the one I, I loved so much, used to say, 
you know, for you to become an entrepreneur, not only do you need to be able to see the quote unquote $20 on the ground that others can't see, meaning a financial opportunity that others are missing, but you also need to be in a somewhat financially privileged position for you to be able to act on the opportunity that you see. Because a lot of people see the opportunity, but because of X, Y, and Z reasons, just can't execute on that at that particular moment. So ultimately it becomes like, like with most things, very personal decision. So really, really appreciate Yeah, and one yeah. other point I'll just mention is it's it's really about, um, you know, kind of what is in your DNA, you know, because in smaller companies, you really need to be persistent and tenacious and not take no for an answer and creative and very in tune with, you know, kind of not giving up at all costs. In larger companies, you need to manage stakeholder dynamics and be, you know, and deal with the politics where it exists and decision-making bureaucracy and you know, other, other forms of challenges, right? So I think, I think figuring out what it is that you can be successful of, be successful at, and what aligns with kind of where you're able to influence best is also important. I completely agree. I think, you know, another way to say it, a less eloquent way to say it would be, I guess, you know, leaning into your strengths and everyone has different strengths and it's a lot easier to go, I guess, downhill in some way than always try to fight against, you know, things that you may not be particularly good at. You know, a Venn diagram that I used when I was applying to residency and eventually going off the beaten path was, you know, there's, you want to consider what you want to do. Obviously that's very important, but also what you're good at. And the third thing is what society needs and, and, and sort of somewhere in that intersection, hopefully you'll find something that you absolutely love doing and you're making it, you're creating an impact as you're doing it. This has been a really fantastic discussion. One of my favorites so far, Shanaz, just to finish this off, how can our audience learn more about the amazing work that you're doing and follow the impact that you've had and will continue to have? Ah, oh, it's a good question. Um, so LinkedIn, I tend to be quite active on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter profile, but it's not very active, but we're changing that. And Recode um, Therapeutics certainly will have um, a much more amped up um, social media presence. So both Twitter profile, Twitter handle and um, on LinkedIn. So you can always follow the company. And I didn't get to say much about Recode, but, you know, I'm so passionate about what we're doing here and in, you know, powering the next wave of genetic medicine, which in many ways, you know, precision genetic medicine is the next frontier of medicine. So I'm very excited about our work here to try to enable that. So you can follow us on all of those um, handles and you can follow me on my personal LinkedIn and Twitter feeds as well. Thank you, Shiraz, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. That was such a great episode with Shanaz. Really, really enjoyed it and glad she was able to join us. There's a lot here, but I wanted to give a shot at answering a pretty ambitious question and probably a question I get most often, which is, should I do X or should I do Y? You know, I meet with medical students, residents, MBA students, uh, a lot of people, podcast viewers who always ask me that question. It's usually like, you know, consulting or medicine or entrepreneurship or this. And... I always start with the disclaimer that while I can offer advice and hopefully good advice, I can't be overly prescriptive in telling people to do X, you know, or over Y or vice versa, at least not from, you know, one or two initial conversations that last 30 minutes each. I think the reason is twofold. I think, first of all, what you do at a certain time depends a lot on personal factors, and that can determine things like your optionality, 
your risk tolerance, and so much more. And everyone glorifies, for example, taking startup risk. But as we talked about with Shanaz, if you're 42 with you know 200K in debt and three kids and one more on the way, that's potentially a very different life situation than a 22-year-old college graduate with no debt who's single with no dependents. And everyone's situation is unique enough and idiosyncratic enough that it deserves a thoughtful analysis and sort of casual, you know, pontification from a person you just met, unless you feel that sort of pontification is helpful to eventually make a thoughtful decision. I try not to do that, you know, again, unless someone like explicitly asks for a more prescriptive opinion from my side. I think the second reason is that, you know, everyone is good at very different things. As Shanaz also very thoughtfully pointed out, the skills or the personality disposition sort of needed to be a successful entrepreneur is often somewhat different than someone who's well-suited, let's say, to, to succeed at a larger company. So if you're someone who deals with volatility very well, but can still stay very grounded, but you can also thrive in that environment... Uh, while everyone is telling you no and, and you're getting rejections left and right, when well, then entrepreneurship may make a lot of sense, especially if you have a good idea and a good co-founder. If you're someone who enjoys more stability and feel that you can manage large teams well, and then and you can sort of deal with the politics uh, and the bureaucracy of a larger organization, then a larger company may make more sense. I think leaning into your strengths, I think that's the exact terminology Shanaz used, it's much easier to do that than to, you know, go uphill against gravity continuously. So ultimately, you know, this question of, you know, should I do X or should I do Y? It's a very personal decision that that should take into account not only, you know, your personal situation and what you're good at, but also what you like and enjoy doing. And so that was sort of, it's a general takeaway, but it it is, I think, nonetheless an important one because it's a question that I get very, very often from people. And I just wanted to put that out there. That's really from me and from my side. Uh, over to you, Alex. Chad, I fully agree. That's a great takeaway. And I was reflecting on the conversation with Shahnaz, and I think my takeaway is going to be around her answer to my third question. I asked her that when she was making the decision to leave clinical medicine and go into finance almost 20 years ago, what were the challenges that she faced? And whether she had any difficult conversations with her clinical mentors, given she was leaving clinical medicine into industry. And her answer was that although she was no longer going to practice medicine full time, she still considered herself to be a medical doctor and never considered that she left medicine or stopped being a doctor. And I think that's a paradigm shift that I'm a big fan of because as illustrated by her experience, you know, although she wasn't practicing medicine full or part-time, she may have certainly forgot some of the clinical skills that are applicable to full-time or part-time practice. But at the same time, during her full-time roles in biotech or finance, she leveraged a lot of the learning and expertise that she gained during medical training in medical school to make a lot of decisions and to help bring new therapeutics to market and to help make life science deals that would end up improving the lives of many patients, similar to what she did when she was you know, practicing full-time back in South Africa or when she was practicing in the UK. So I really like the way she positioned the answer that 
you know, even though she will not be practicing medicine anymore, she doesn't stop being a medical doctor and she uses those same skills to impact the lives of patients that she would otherwise do if she was practicing medicine full or part-time. So that would be my two cents on the conversation. But for the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. We always love hearing from the audience with feedback and suggestions, so please do reach out. And if you enjoy the content and find it helpful, you can support us by buying us a coffee at http semicolon to slash buymeacoffee.com slash potbppodcast. See you next time.